Well, good morning. I want to invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Exodus 34. We're going to be in verses 10 through 28. Cheap grace is the mortal enemy of our church. So begins the cost of discipleship by 20th century German pastor and theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Cheap grace is the mortal enemy of our church. Bonhoeffer famously contrasts cheap grace with costly grace, and he goes on, according to cheap grace, because grace alone does everything, everything can stay in its old ways. Thus, the Christian should live the same way the world does, according to cheap grace. Cheap grace is that grace which we bestow on ourselves. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Baptism without church discipline. Communion without confession. Absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship. Grace without the cross. Grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. Cheap grace is the threat that Moses warned about in Deuteronomy 29 when he wrote, beware lest there be among you a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit. Here's what it is. One who, when he hears the words of this covenant, blesses himself in his heart saying, I shall be safe though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. That's the essence of cheap grace. That grace which we bestow on ourselves so generously. I shall be safe, though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. Cheap grace rips the revelation of God's glorious grace in Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7 that we saw last week, out of its context and says, since God is merciful and gracious and forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, therefore... I can carry on. I can do as I please. There's no need to trust God and obey God. In fact, to obey God would probably even detract from his grace. So everything should remain just as it is. I believe Bonhoeffer was right. Cheap grace is a mortal enemy of the church. It's a danger that those who have grown up in the church are particularly susceptible to. Anybody with a church background, anybody who's heard that Jesus Christ died for your sins, that God is forgiving and merciful and gracious, is tempted to hear that good news and say, that sounds great to me, while I carry on in the stubbornness of my heart. But Exodus 34, 10 through 28, guards us against the trap of cheap grace by calling those who have been forgiven by God to live faithfully in covenant with God. So I want to invite you, if you're able, out of reverence for God's word, to stand with me as we read God's word. And we stand because we honor God and his words, which are authoritative in our lives. Exodus 34, beginning in verse 10. And he, that is the Lord, said, Behold, I am making a covenant. Before all your people I will do marvels such as have not been created in all the earth or in any nation. And all the people among whom you are shall see the work of the Lord. For it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. 
observe what I command you this day. Behold, I will drive out before you the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Take care, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land to which you go, lest it become a snare in your midst. You shall tear down their altars and break their pillars and cut down their asherim, for you shall worship no other god. For the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous god. Lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and when they whore after their gods and sacrifice to their gods, and you are invited, you eat of his sacrifice, and you take of their daughters for your sons, and their daughters whore after their gods, and make your sons whore after their gods. You shall not make for yourself any gods of cast metal. You shall keep the feast of unleavened bread. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread as I commanded you at the time appointed in the month Abib. For in the month Abib you came out from Egypt. All that open the womb are mine. All your male livestock, the firstborn of cow and sheep, the firstborn of a donkey, you shall redeem with a lamb. Or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. All the firstborn of your sons you shall redeem. And none shall appear before me empty-handed. Six days you shall work, but on the seventh day you shall rest. In plowing time and in harvest you shall rest. You shall observe the feast of weeks, the first fruits of wheat harvest, and the feast of ingathering at the year's end. Three times in the year you shall all your males appear before the Lord God, the God of Israel. For I will cast out nations before you and enlarge your borders. No one shall covet your land. When you go up to appear before the Lord your God three times in the year, you shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with anything leavened or let the sacrifice of the feast of the Passover remain until the morning. The best of the first fruits of your ground you shall bring to the house of the Lord your God. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. And the Lord said to Moses, write these words. For in accordance with these words, I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. So he was there with the Lord 40 days and 40 nights. He neither ate bread nor drank water, and he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. Let's pray. Father, you are, as we have seen again and again in Exodus, the God who speaks. You communicate yourself in words. You reveal your glory and your goodness and your name by proclaiming and announcing and declaring. You make covenant with your people by speaking words and giving us good and gracious commands. Thank you that you communicate yourself to us and that you are doing that here this morning. As we open your word, we pray that your spirit would open up our hearts to receive and believe every word that comes from your mouth. We live by these words. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Exodus 34, 10 through 28 answers the question, what happens after God forgives idolaters and sinners? How does God relate to people whom God has forgiven of great sin? How does God expect forgiven people to relate to him? How should they live? Does God 
require anything of them? Or does receiving God's grace simply exempt you from obedience to God? According to Exodus 34, we see that God mercifully maintains his covenant relationship with his forgiven people. God mercifully maintains his covenant relationship with his forgiven people. When God forgives your sin, he restores you into fellowship with himself. That means God keeps his promises to you while also calling you to put off sin and to put on godliness. That's my outline this morning. When God forgives your sin, he keeps covenant with you and he calls you to put off sin and to put on godliness. First, God keeps covenant with you. The astonishing assurance of Exodus 34, 10 through 28 is that God is willing. He is willing to keep his promises to those who have been unfaithful to him. That guarantee bookends this entire passage that we just read. Verse 10 begins with it, and he said, behold, I am making a covenant. And the passage ends in verses 27 through 28. And the Lord said to Moses, write these words, for in accordance with these words, I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. And then it repeats scenes that should be familiar to us from earlier in Exodus. Here Moses is again with the Lord 40 days and 40 nights. He neither ate bread nor drank water. And he, that is the Lord, wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant the Ten Commandments. Not only does God say that he's making a covenant again, but he replaces the broken stone tablets with two new tablets engraved with the same Ten Commandments. So here we are. This is finally the resolution to the golden calf debacle that started all the way back in Exodus 32. Remember, Moses at the time was on the top of Mount Sinai. He was receiving instructions from God to build God's dwelling place right in the midst of the people of God. Meanwhile, the people were down at the foot of the mountain breaking covenant with God and worshiping a golden calf. Immediately, God revealed to Moses his just and righteous and holy response to sin, that that sin deserves to be destroyed and these people destroyed for their sin. But the rest of Exodus 32 and 33 into the beginning of 34, contains Moses' intercession. And we have seen over the last several weeks how Moses pleaded with God for mercy. He implored God for God's presence to remain with his people, to not depart from them. And here, finally, we have God's answer, Behold, I am making a covenant. Wrapped up in those brief words, is the gracious answer to all of Moses' prayers. A covenant is a, a solemn bond between God and his people in which both parties give themselves to each other. Not with empty nothings, not with mere words, but with a solemn oath of loyalty that comes with blessings for faithfulness and obedience as well as curses for disobedience and unfaithfulness. To be in covenant with God is to have the assurance of God's forgiveness, the promise of God's presence, the guarantee of God's favor and his provision. God first made a covenant with Israel after he had freed them from bondage to Egypt, brought them into the desert to Mount Sinai. Now, what's so significant about this 
is that they immediately broke that covenant. They worshipped a golden calf like a bride committing adultery on her honeymoon. And yet here we see God upholding that covenant, keeping that covenant. In verse 10, God renews his promise to work on behalf of his people when he says, before all your people, I will do marvels such as have not been created in all the earth or in any nation. And all the people among whom you are shall see the work of the Lord, for it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. Notice in this promise who's doing all the work. I am making a covenant. I will do marvels. All the people shall see the work of the Lord. It is an awesome thing that I will do with you. That is the very foundation of God's covenant relationship with his people. God's own commitment to work for their good, on their behalf. God is the one who will work wonders, perform marvels, do awesome deeds. That's God's side of the covenant. That's his commitment. But to be in covenant with God comes with obligations, covenant responsibilities, which God also here repeats. He reiterates, he restores covenant by repeating the terms of this covenant. Look at verse 11. Observe what I command you this day. And then we have, in verses 11 through 26, various commands that are found earlier in Exodus, between chapters 20 through 23, repeated here again. Not necessarily in the exact same order or the exact same words, but certainly not new ideas. In spite of their unfaithfulness, God is clearly choosing to maintain covenant relationship with his unfaithful people. Think about it like a marriage where sexual immorality violates the marriage covenant, breaks the marriage covenant. But when the offended spouse chooses mercifully to forgive, the covenant can be preserved. Forgiveness does not change the terms of the marriage as if to say, well, now adultery is okay in this marriage. It's not. Forgiveness is one party choosing not to enforce the consequences of covenant unfaithfulness so that fellowship can be restored, so that the covenant can be maintained. And here's the crucial point. When the gracious and merciful God of Exodus 34, 6 through 7 forgives, the result of his forgiveness is the restoration of covenant relationship. With all of its blessings and all of its responsibilities, it's not the removal of the covenant. This is critical to understand. So many people today think this way about God's forgiveness, as though God just excuses sin, says, you know what, never mind, it's okay. Carry on, keep sinning, no big deal rather than God's forgiveness restoring you into right relationship with God. It's common, like Bonhoeffer said, to think of grace as cheap grace. Grace is the removal of any and all obligation to trust and obey God. But God does not deal with disobedience by saying, you know what, I used to not be okay with disobedience, now it doesn't bother me. No, God deals with disobedience by forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, like he said back in verse 7 so that the forgiven sinner can remain in covenant with God. God keeps covenant. But what does he require then of forgiven sinners? 
the specific commands in this covenant renewal can be framed, I think, in the familiar two-part paradigm that we find throughout Scripture. This is always the way that God works in his people and produces change in our lives. Put off and put on. Put off and put on. That's language from the New Testament. God keeps his promises, and then he calls his people to put off sin and to put on godliness. We see that God calls his people here in verses 11 through 17 to put off. God calls you to put off sin in your life. God calls forgiven people to put away idolatry, the very sin that they just committed. In verse 12, he says to them, take care. That word means be on guard, watch out, beware. Take care lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land to which you go. Think about this. If, if Israel was all alone in the desert, when their own sinful hearts craved an idol, and then their hands carved that very idol, how is it going to go for them when they arrive in Canaan? A land teeming with idol worshipers. And all the artifacts of idol worship, altars and pillars and sacred poles. I mean, bringing Israel into the land of Canaan is like taking your toddler into a toy store and saying, we're just looking. Or bringing an alcoholic into a liquor store. This, what could possibly go wrong, right? Israel is heading into the land of Canaan, and so God's first prescription is demolish everything when you get there. Verse 13, you shall tear down their altars and break their pillars and cut down their asherim. Altars and pillars and asherim all refer to fixtures of idol worship. An asherah pole, asherim is the plural, asherah pole is like a, a sacred post and maybe sometimes a tree that represented the Canaanite goddess of fertility, asherah. Usually it would be set up next to an altar to the god Baal. These idolatrous artifacts would undoubtedly be a snare to the people of Israel, a temptation, a trap to lure them in. Either they would be tempted to worship these idols also, or maybe they might even get a great idea like, we won't worship those idols, we'll worship Yahweh, our God, and we'll just use these altars that were conveniently left here for us, and maybe we could find a use for this pillar as well. Not only does God repeat the first and second commandments, you shall worship no other God, Verse 14, you shall not make for yourself any gods of cast metal. Verse 17, and by the way, that wording changes from the Ten Commandments. Here it is, you shall not make for yourself any gods of cast metal, which is the very thing they did with the golden calf. But he applies these commands practically. Th these are not abstract doctrines to simply know in your head, theological convictions, like as long as you believe there's only one God, you're keeping the first commandment. No, he applies this practically and says, you shall tear down their altars, for you shall worship no other God, verse 13. So tearing down these idols in the land of Canaan would be the practical application of the first commandment. And God repeats this motivation, which is contained in the second commandment. Here's why. For the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. That is a strong protection against cheap grace. In verses 6 and 7, the Lord had passed before Moses. He proclaimed his name, the Lord. The Lord, a God merciful and gracious. And here in verse 14, God reminds Moses that God goes by another name as well. That name is jealous. 
jealous, like a husband who is appropriately jealous for his wife's exclusive affection. God is passionately devoted to protecting his people, to having their full and exclusive allegiance and their worship. God graciously forgives repentant idolaters who forsake their idols and turn to him. But he does not tolerate unrepentant idolatry. Besides tearing down altars and chopping down Asherim, God warns his people not to make a covenant with the inhabitants of Canaan in verse 12. And the logic comes in verses 15 and 16. Look there. Take care lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land and when they whore after their gods and sacrifice to their gods and you are invited and you want to just be a good neighbor, so you go over and you eat of his sacrifice and you take of their daughters for your sons and their daughters whore after their gods and make your sons whore after their gods. Notice how God warns against this incremental descent into idolatry. That is instructive for us. First, there's tolerance of idolatry, and there are peace treaties with these people in the land, and then an invitation to participate with them and just eat a meal, barbecue, sacrifice to these idols, and then, hey, actually, their kids aren't that bad, and maybe our sons could marry their daughters, and verse 16 warns that tolerance of idolatry in one generation will lead to full-blown idolatry in the next. Falling into temptation never just happens out of the blue. It's like the game of chess. There are many moves that happen prior to checkmate. Most of them, when you're making those moves, have a reason. They look good, look harmless, look safe. Next thing you know, it's all over. Did you know that the new covenant in Christ contains put-off commands for us as well? Colossians 3.5, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Galatians 5.24, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Ephesians 4.22, put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. 1 Corinthians 10, 14, therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Romans 13, 14, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh. Give no quarter. Make no excuses. Tolerate nothing to gratify its desires. And here's Paul In the New Testament, mind you, lest we think, well, in the Old Testament, God related to his people through covenants with commands. In the New Testament, it's all just cheap grace. Here's Paul in the New Testament citing and applying Old Testament passages from Exodus and Leviticus and Isaiah to New Covenant believers. This is worth quoting at length. 2 Corinthians 6, beginning in verse 14. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or What fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial, which is a name for Satan? Is there any fellowship between those two? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we 
brothers and sisters. We are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, in light of such glorious and gracious covenant promises from God, therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Here's Paul again. Since we, that's us, new covenant Christians, since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. When God forgives graciously welcomes forgiven sinners back into covenant with himself and calls you to put off sin, put off every defilement and every temptation to sin. Are there temptations to worldliness and idolatry that you are tolerating in your life right now? Are there social accounts you follow? Are there podcasts you listen to? company that you keep, shows in your Netflix queue that lure your heart away. Maybe not just all of a sudden to idolatry, but subtly and slowly and surely from hope in Christ to desire for the things of the world. Are there patterns of sin in your life that you keep excusing while you assure yourself, but God's a forgiving God, so it's okay. Let God's gracious forgiveness motivate you to put off such things. Finally, God calls his people to put on godliness. Whenever you put something off, you have to put something else on. Any fool with an axe can go chop down an Asherah pole. That's not the same thing as worshiping the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Chop down an Asherah, what are you going to worship instead? In verses 18 through 26, God calls his people to put on practices that nurture their faith in God, that express their delight in and their love for God, what we often refer to as means of grace, God-given ways that we relate to God and experience his grace and his presence and his power in our lives. Some of the details here, granted, in the old covenant, sound strange to our modern ears, don't they? You've got prohibitions against leaven in verses 18 and 25, and verse 20 details how to redeem your donkey, and if you don't, just break its neck, Okay? My favorite, verse 26, you shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk, which must have been very important because it is repeated from earlier in Exodus 23, comes up later in the books of Moses. Think of these commands as God training God's people to trust God. That's what he's doing. He's training his people to trust him. It's like the way the military teaches obedience, You know how they do that? They they require soldiers, you will fold your shirt like this. And if it's slightly off, do it again. Get it right. You will make your bed like this. I see some of you nodding. Maybe you've been through basic training and you remember those days. Why does the military care so much about bed sheets and t-shirts? The answer is they don't. They care about obedience That weeds out people who can't take orders because the chaos of war is no time to deal with soldiers who are going to question everything and insist that they're going to do it their own way. Wouldn't it be faster if I just did it like this? 
Likewise, God is teaching his people to trust him completely in all of life, every aspect of life. So Exodus 34 gives instructions for three annual feasts that Israel was to observe. These were regular corporate worship gatherings that tangibly reminded God's people of God's past faithfulness to them, God's provision and his protection in their lives. There was the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which celebrated their exodus from Egypt. They were supposed to celebrate that and remember that year after year. Why? Because aren't we prone to forget? The Feast of Weeks, which is also called Pentecost, that would celebrate the beginning of the grain harvest every year. They would celebrate that for the first time when they entered the promised land and feasted of the abundant provision from God. And then they would do that every year after to remind themselves every good thing we have comes from God. And then the feast of ingathering at the end of the harvest, rejoicing in God's faithfulness and his provision to them. In the new covenant, we no longer observe these particular uniquely Hebrew holidays, not because they are irrelevant, but because they have been fulfilled for us and transformed in Jesus. Paul told the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 5, 7 through 8, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. He's taking Old Testament language, applying it to New Covenant Christians. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival. That's Paul in the New Covenant using this language, saying to all of us, let's celebrate the festival. Which one? The Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Let's celebrate that. How? What does that look like for us today? Not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So it's transformed now. Unleavened bread was never really about the leaven. It was about putting off malice and evil and putting on sincerity and truth. So obedience looks different for us today, but we're still called to trust and obey. Likewise, on the day of Pentecost, that was the Feast of Weeks, it was on that day that Jesus poured out his Holy Spirit. That was the feast when the harvest began. What does that symbolize for us? The harvest has begun, and God is saving people from all the nations on earth, pouring out his Spirit on all flesh. And we know that one day when Jesus, who was the first fruits from the dead, returns, he will fulfill the feast of ingathering and gather all his own to himself. So just like Old Testament Israel, the New Covenant Church gathers regularly for corporate worship to nourish and to express our faith in and our love for God. God also prescribes rest for his people. Verse 21 repeats the fourth commandment, six days you shall work, but on the seventh day you shall rest. To be clear, Sabbath rest has never been a meritorious service that anybody rendered to God to earn anything from God. It's always been about trusting God, trusting that every good thing you have or hope to have comes from God alone and not from your own striving. And the command to rest poses a question, doesn't it? A question about our faith. Do, do you trust God to provide all you need enough to take a rest from your labors? Or are you too anxious, too overwhelmed, too dependent on yourself? And Exodus 34 adds this clarifying detail that wasn't present in chapter 20. In plowing time and in harvest you shall rest. That's fascinating. According to human calculations, there are times when we think, okay, I can afford to rest now. 
And other times when we tell ourselves, I, I can't afford to. It's just that time of year. It's that season. It's too busy. Too much rests on me. I, I can't now, but I will later. God says, even when you think you can't rest from your work, there any time that an agricultural people couldn't rest, it would be plowing time and harvest time. You farmers understand. God says, trust me enough to rest. So putting on that habit of weekly rest and worship, that, that's God's prescription for people whose hearts are prone to idolatry, and it's meant to guard them against self-reliance. And then finally, God prescribes generous giving. He says in verse 19, all that open the womb are mine, all your male livestock, the firstborn of cow and sheep, none shall appear before me empty-handed. The best of the first fruits, is verse 26, of your ground you shall bring to the house of the Lord your God. So, so God called Israel to give him their first and their best as a protection against pride and idolatry. Notice the connection in Deuteronomy 8 between wealth and a descent into idolatry. When Moses says there, Deuteronomy 8.11, take care lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes, lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, and when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, just like God promised, he's gonna bless you, he's gonna multiply you, when that happens, beware, take care, lest your heart be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God. Why, why would you forget the Lord your God? Well, here's how the thinking would go. Beware lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. My work ethic, my intelligence, look what I have done. You shall remember the Lord your God for it is he who gives you power to get wealth that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers as it is this day. And if you forget the Lord your God, here's the idolatry connection, and go after other gods and serve them and worship them, I solemnly warn you today that you shall surely perish. Faithfulness leads to prosperity, prosperity to self-reliance, self-reliance to amnesia, and idolatry and death. So what's the remedy? God prescribes to his people, give. Give regularly back to God from your first and your best. That will keep your heart free from the love of money. It will remind you constantly that everything you have comes from the Lord anyway. God gave his people means of grace to sustain them and keep them and preserve them. Do, do you see God's means of grace? Corporate worship, rest, giving, Bible reading, prayer. Do, do you see those means of grace as duties that you begrudgingly perform for God to be a good Christian, or do you see those as kind and wise prescriptions from God meant to strengthen your faith, nurture your love for him, protect your heart from idolatry, keep you in covenant with himself? This is how God relates to his forgiven people. He mercifully maintains covenant relationship with you, and you Brothers and sisters have access to something better than a renewed covenant at Mount Sinai. You have access to the new covenant enacted on better promises by a better mediator guaranteed by the blood of Jesus. And it's to new covenant Christians that Paul says in Titus 2.11, the grace of God has appeared. Bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, 
and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us. That is not cheap grace. It cost him his life. And he gave himself to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Do you see that? The grace of God saves you and the very same grace of God trains you to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. Have you received that costly grace from God? That grace that saves and trains? Or do you only know that cheap grace that you bestow on yourself? If you're living in worldliness, sin, idolatry, unbelief, this morning, do not lie to yourself that God doesn't care. Turn to Christ. Forsake the idols of your heart. Confess your sins to the Lord. Trust in him and enjoy his forgiveness and his grace that will change you and transform you and make you new. And if you are in Christ, then magnify the riches of God's mercy by trusting him and walking in his ways. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your covenant-keeping mercy, your kindness to undeserving, unfaithful sinners, that you would restore us to yourself through the work of Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. It's his death now that we remember and proclaim. Amen.